Hey everybody, it is episode 58 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Rogue Running in Austin, Texas. Steve is here with me. Hey Steve. Hello everyone. We are coming at you on a Thursday after Houston Marathon weekend and so we're going to actually start by chatting about some Houston results. Before we get there quickly though, just to give you a preview on our topic for today, we're going to be talking about two very important parts of the marathon or half marathon training cycle, which is the taper phase and also the post-race recovery phase, talking to you about how to bounce back from a marathon or half and then hopefully get back into your next cycle. So that'll be our main topic for today, but as we always do, we'll start with some intro things. Leading off with Houston, we had a big day for rogues there. Overall. Yes, we did. It yes, was we did. Picture perfect half marathon or marathon weather. I don't think you could ask for better weather. Maybe slightly on the cool side, but that's way better than warm. And it was about mid thirty, you know, mid thirties at the start. Sunny day, no wind, relatively no wind, and it warmed up into the forties by the finish. But absolutely, just perfect. Dry as well, no humidity. Absolutely perfect, and a lot of PRs from rogues out there. So shout out to the rogues and to the Austinites that kick some major ass at Houston. One of those was me, Steve. Yes, <laughs> we you talked did. about it. We talked about it at least a little bit on the main podcast. I also our podcast training group got a full kind of debrief from you and I beforehand on the race plan. So that group at least knows a little bit more about our plan going in. But I was able to get that marathon PR by 12 very precious <laughs> seconds. Yes. Which was, I mean, basically our plan was kind of right at that edge. So it wasn't like we were looking for a big, much bigger result than that. But I, w- and I would have been happy with a second PR, you know, if I run a, if I ran a good race. Well, that's good that because you <laughs> didn't get it by much more than that. <laughs> yeah. But what, you know, it was. You had a super, super secret goal, which wasn't really super, super secret, but you did have a goal of going under 245 if it was there. But yeah. you were going into the race, you were, you, you and I had talked about how you knew it was going to be that tight. It wasn't like you were wondering if it was going to be a three minute window. You knew you had a very tight window. Yeah. Well, and as I told you, that the podcast group heard was I thought maybe I was in 246 or 247 shape that 245 was you know gonna be a tough thing for me given where I was fitness wise and you know maybe there was gonna be more there who knows you never know till you get on but till you get in there the was of it. not more there for me right it was a beautifully run race but it definitely was tough and and yeah, you know it's it, interesting it looked like it helped to have a little help at the end for sure yeah, yeah I mean I had you guys cheering on the course, lots of rogues cheering, plus a teammate jumped in for the final six miles, which helped just give you a reference point because at yes. that point, you're not you're I not was, trusting. It's I hard was to by trust myself, anything. and it's hard yeah. to trust your own feelings. And you know, it was one of these days. It's it's interesting. This is my 16th marathon finish. It's interesting how every single one, you know, just plays out a little bit differently. You never can count on, you know, it going a certain way necessarily. You know, my last marathon PR four years ago at, at the Bryan College Station Marathon, I felt terrible for eight miles and then great for the final 18. Yep. You know, this time I felt great really through the first 14 or so. You know, you saw me at, I think, 11 and a half or just before 12. And I had a little group there 
was running with Brian Fagan, who runs with us. And there was a another woman with us, Sarah, who was trying to get her trials qualifier. And then this kid, Adam, who had a Carnegie Mellon uh, singlet on. Yeah, he was and in a lot of pictures with you. Yeah, and we <laughs> were together. Really, that group, we were together for probably six until 12 or so, just rolling together. Jay with, with, was with us till about 10 until he started moving on. And, but it was interesting because we hit the 12-mile mark, and that's the point where you kind of go up and over this big overpass there on, on West Park in Houston, which is really the biggest hill of the race. And, you know, I was feeling good, super smooth. We go up and over that hill, and then suddenly there's just two of us. <laughs> you know, I was looking at the shadows because the sun was behind us, and I, got, I only saw two shadows. So it was me and the Carnegie Mellon kid, Adam, <laughs> were left. It's Brian and that girl just disappeared on that one climb. And then about a half mile later, the kid just takes off. <laughs> like just before we hit the halfway point, he just goes. And I'm like, okay, well, here, here we I go. am. <laughs> and I was suddenly by myself. Solo. Yeah, I was feeling great. I was like cruising. I was like, we got it packed. This is awesome. Feeling good. And then all of a sudden I was by myself. And that was a point in the race where we had this little out and back. So we went out to just past 13. And then you do a U-turn and then come back and go under this other underpass to get to the other side of the Galleria area and suddenly I was by myself we flipped around and I was also into a slight headwind coming back and so suddenly like I went from feeling like smooth and having a perfect feeling of the pace to suddenly being like oh no oh shit here we go (laughs) you know I was kind of by myself and kind of struggling to find a new rhythm at that point because Heading back to the east, we hit some headwind, and then going north through the Galleria, we were also facing some headwinds, probably the stiffest of the race. Nothing crazy, but just enough to throw you off a little bit. And so I remember at 14, seeing a little slower split on my watch and thinking, okay, here we go, you know. And about 16, I started to really feel it in my legs, Mm -hmm. you know, more so than I would wanted at that point. You know, I was kind of hoping to cruise for 20 and then close for 6. But I started to feel it at 16 or so to the point where I had to make a decision to start putting more into it than I maybe wanted to at 16, kind of using some of that close, you know, mojo to start main to just maintain pace at 16. And um, and I remember thinking in my head, literally, the, the thought was like, okay, well, this is going to be the toughest 10 miles I've ever <laughs> run because, <laughs> you know, this is a little too hard now. And so I started putting a little more into it to press and maintain that pace. And my splits, if you look at them, were super consistent, except for mile 25. But I had to put more work into it. But it, it. belies the work yeah, that you had it, to do. Yeah, I started putting more work into it at 16 just to maintain. And each mile from there to the finish, I had to put a little bit more into it just to hold what I wanted to do and but I knew I was seeing my kids at 18 because they were there on the course so that was a little milestone and then I knew James would jump in at 20 so that was a milestone yeah you at know. 19 you gave me the death stare <laughs> yeah you gave me the you, you I saw you saw me but I'm not sure I got I, I it was it was hard to tell I could <laughs> see that you were steeled for the endeavor ahead and yeah. that you were going to do everything you possibly had but there was no waving or smiling <laughs> right. it was just locked and loaded yeah you know and i want to remind our listeners you know you and i've talked many times in our discussions of the marathon about not expecting to feel a certain way i think it's really important that our listeners hear what you just said there about how you had hoped that you would be 20 and it would be easier by the time you got there 
but it wasn't your expectation, right? right? And so you were prepared for the, oh, snap, I've got to do more work for longer than I'd hoped, but this is what I signed up for, and I'm ready to yeah. do it. And all it's distressing, and it's frustrating, and it doesn't, it isn't a confidence boost. Um, that, for, for folks who decide that it's got to be a certain way, and that it's gonna not going to hurt till they decide it's going to hurt in their pre-race plan, if they're not resilient enough to know that they, that they, they need to troubleshoot, do the problem solving, and think through, think through what could happen out on the course and be prepared for that, then that negative feedback loop becomes very problematic and it's harder and harder to get done what needs to get done. And tell folks what you were th- kind of thinking about when that process, when you started to know kind of, oh shit, and and what you what where where did your mind go and what was going on there? Not necessarily as a this is how to do it, but more along the lines of, you know, we've been working on this podcast to talk about mental training and doing yeah. these things. You know, what happened in the battle in the moment of battle? So, there were two things mentally I was processing to stay in the game. One was my main mantra for this race, which was my athletes my team the morning show you know that was for me the mantra was do it for the morning show Mm -hmm. because i wanted to inspire them and and literally i had practiced in some of my workouts and and final long runs where we did closes and stuff visualizing the faces of my athletes in their states of setting goals and finishing strong because I've witnessed it, I've also imagined it through the tracking screens. And so, you know, so I thought about them and I thought about them watching me through the tracking on this race and how, you know, I wanted, not just wanted to do it for them, but I had to do it for them. So it was like, I didn't have a choice but to go (laughs) to suffer and do what I needed to do. So that was part of it. The other thing I kept reflecting on, as I told you after the race was, it's now or never. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that became a sort of a the secondary mantra the because impromptu. it was like I was looking around at this beautiful day, perfect temperatures, gloves on, you know, exactly how I want to be racing a marathon and the sun out. You had I a just, real reason for those yeah, half tights. Like, well, this, yeah, real reason <laughs> for the half tights. I was like, it's now or never, you know. I can't let this opportunity be wasted. You know, you don't get many days like that. So that was another thing I kept thinking about. And then beyond that, you know, it's the, all the things I typically teach, which is stay relaxed. You know, I, I was doing a lot of, you know, Houston, fortunately, has a lot of straightaways, mm-hmm. not a lot of turns where you can just, I was literally closing my eyes and visualizing those faces as I described and just trying to relax the body, keep the arms and legs as fluid as I could, even though they were starting to get tight. So those were the things that were going through my mind. And, and I knew if I got to James, you know, that would give me somebody kind of a reference point um, because at that point I was running alone or catching people that were slowing down so there was no good reference points on the course and you know and then it was all right you know just a little bit more every mile to try to get it done and you know as James would say he's like I've never witnessed child labor but you you, you sounded <laughs> like you were having a baby back there because <laughs> I was grunting and breathing loud and it wasn't pretty but and and uh, have, having witnessed labor, it certainly wasn't that bad. But you know, <laughs> but I was definitely digging into the well and going deep. And you know, I had one mile, mile twenty-five that 
has kind of an underpass and a little uphill climb out of it that's pretty steady to the end of that mile. And I hit a 625 split there, mile 25. And I saw my watch, and I thought, if I do that again, I'm not going to get it. Right. You know. You knew so how tight you were. I so your math skills, yeah. you were you were able to still do enough of that math <laughs> yeah, to know. And then they had a, a clock there with the gun time on it. So I knew it was going to be close and that I didn't have any window for error. So just started pressing from that final mile point. And the last thing I had done before I went to bed the night before was count the street lights in downtown Houston from because you kind of cross from west to east to the convention center across all of downtown. And so I counted the street lights that we would go, go through on Lamar crossing downtown and and there were 11 of them. So I knew if I could get to that 11th street light and countdown, I could, could make do your it. You countdown. You know? And you so I started my <laughs> countdown there and was pressing basically at every street light to try to get to that finish line. And and then, uh, you know, when I saw the finishing clock, I could see it ticking towards my PR. And as I went under it, it hit literally exactly my PR. Wow. Which means, you know, which I knew meant I got it. because right. I had, you had a little I had buffer. A, I had a buffer. Yeah. Because it was, you know, I knew it was at least five to ten seconds. Ended up being twelve, mm-hmm. you know, to my chip. So, so yeah, got it, and obviously was super relieved. But more than anything, just happy that that I did it for my team, and also that I know I left everything out there. There was not more time for me that day, on um, given my fitness, given how I felt at the end, and so, you know, that's what you want from a race. Sweet revenge <laughs> on the 10 miler. <laughs> yeah, right. Sweet revenge. Yeah, it's crazy because that race, I look back, I averaged 16, 617 per mile. And this marathon, I, I averaged 619. That's so crazy. Just two seconds slower <laughs> over two and a half times the distance. And, and for our listeners, it's not like we were doing a specific training phase for you for the 10 miler. We definitely stayed on that through the 10 miler. But it, I, I just want to demystify this how much faster did Chris get in the window of time between the 10 miler and this? Yes, there's weather conditions. Yes, there was some training changes that we did, not to your schedule because of what happened, but because you were moving into a marathon focused zone. But it's not the physiology that allows a person to run only two seconds slower for a, more than twice the distance, it's the mind. And it's the mental focus on the task at hand. And if anybody had asked you at the 10-miler, after the 10-miler, to do the math to go, okay, you've got to run, only you can only run two seconds slower to get your goal, you would have been discouraged. And you would have thought, I'm not sure that that's possible, even though you know that it is possible. But there's that feeling to sort of believe that our results, the last result we had is the only result we're going to get. And you're wise enough to continue to do the work, stay focused on the goal, and to keep believing that, if, the, if it's going to come on a given day, it'll come, and uh, and you get there. And, yes, the weather conditions were terrible at the 10-miler, and the course was way tougher, and there's other pieces there. But the vast, the biggest part of that equation, in my opinion as your coach watching you, is you showed up the d- game day were better conditions for you, and you brought it, and you were mentally prepared for the thing that was going to get thrown at you, and you weren't mentally prepared to deal with all of the challenges that showed up at the 10 miler. Some of them were physiological, but once you go down that, that, that poop, that poop shoot down the tube, (laughs) that's going terrible. It makes it really difficult to pull out and and get the result that you want. So 
Uh, I just want our listeners to hear that, those marathoners to listen and say, this is why apples, we're not going apples to apples, apples and oranges when we talk about race distances. Um, so, Yeah, and the other thing, too, as a, just a takeaway for me and all of this, you know, 20 months ago was the last time I towed a marathon starting line trying to PR. Right. I think I was fitter then, you know, probably 242, 243 shape. And I ended up walking the last four miles of Boston, and that kicked off a series of things that we've talked about on here from injuries to broken elbow and elbow surgery. And and literally, it wasn't until this fall that I started to see semblances of that old self again. And there were times in that where, you know, maybe fleeting, but I thought, gosh, why am I doing this? You know, like, this is stupid. Let's just quit seeking these better times and be happy with the run, you know, and, and, but, you know, I just, every time you just keep moving, you just got to keep moving forward. Yeah. You know, it's like every little obstacle and you might have a bunch of them. And I have people in my groups that I've coached that have had more obstacles than I've had and they keep moving forward. You just got to keep moving forward. And, you know, November, that race in November was one of those obstacles where, you could have, I could have let it defeat me or say, look, you know, or get, get into a negative space, but you know, you put it behind you and just keep moving forward. And, and if you keep moving forward, then good things come. So, so that's one lesson for me from me and also from me over the last 20 months of work, but super happy. Thanks to you, coach Steve. Thanks to all the podcasts. I had people from the podcast, Wish me luck and or congratulations, which I really appreciate. Lots of rogues out on the course as well, both teammates and, and rogues I coach and rogues that just train with us. So thanks to you guys for cheering. And also kudos to the morning show athletes that got it done for my group. I think I had of those that were seeking a PR, all but one of them was able to achieve it on that day. So it was a good day for a lot of my athletes as well as other rogue athletes. So congrats to those. They got it done. A big day. And for Team Rogue, a lot of good Team Rogue results as well. Yes, we did. Now, that's that. Let's talk about the Elite Race for a second. We had, as we had predicted, made some predictions on the last episode that got released last Monday. We'll start with where we started there, which was the women's half. We were predicting Huddle versus Hesse and whether or not the American record would go down. You and I both predicted Huddle would get it done. And she did yep. in in Flying Colors, smashing the previous record by nine seconds. I don't know if you saw her finish. I know she struggled over the last 7K. but I didn't get to see her finish. But her, I saw a video of her finish, and she looked like a bulldozer flying through the line. I mean, she got a kick in the final 100. She found it. She knew yeah. it was close, so yep. she kind of kicked hard in the final 100. And, man, it was a nice, strong finish She'd for missed her, it so. before, so yeah. you know, she didn't want to have that so happen So kudos again. to Molly Huddle. New American record holder in 107.25. Yeah, we predicted, we we both thought Molly was going to win, and we both thought she would get the record, but we, we did think that Jordan would be closer. Um, we thought Jordan would, uh, it played out the way we said, too, that we thought Molly would go with the lead pack to make sure yep. that she got done what needed to get done, and we didn't know if Jordan would do that or not. And that we were correct with. But just the, the disc- they came by me at five miles, and I don't know, I, didn't, I wasn't counting exactly, but it, it was 45 seconds Maybe yep. even a minute between them, and maybe it, you know when you're standing there on the sidelines and it's chilly and cold, and you just got out of a warm <laughs> car for the first time, 
time seems to move much more slowly. So it could have been only 30 seconds. I don't know. But it was like Jordan's not making that up unless people die. Right. And Jordan ran that race. She had some guys to run with, but I mean, she was running solo. There was she was then she was another thirty seconds ahead of the next group of people. Yep. She kind of ran all by herself out there. Yeah, similar to last year, she ended up two seconds faster than her time last year in Houston. Still a good result for her. And we found out in the post race interview that they kind of decided to just let that race go. That right. the focus was really on having a good tempo effort, and then just kickstart kickstarting their her Boston training versus really trying to go too much to the well. So they kind of let Molly take it and Molly did. Yeah, I I love I love that you I'm sure they didn't use the word we let Molly take it. I'm sure those were your your <laughs> right, words. Right. But, you know, I I don't care. Like Molly <laughs> killed it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. ultimately, you know, the question can be we can still say, you know, this it's so funny these the the way that game the the cat and mouse game goes with these things, and you can say whatever you want, but that would have been a new space for Jordan to be that much faster at that early in the race, and how would she have responded? Right. And it seems pretty painfully obvious that well that Jordan was in is in more marathon shape than she is in half, and you know we'll talk about this in a little bit, Chris. But yep. is Molly in better half shape than marathon, and is there enough time to get where she needs to be? Right. Well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but yep. um, it's uh, it's just a, it's in the cat and mouse game that goes on afterwards. In my opinion, and before, really has nothing to do with what happens when the gun goes off and before they come across the finish line. Right. And that's what we should really judge most of what's going <laughs> on here. Fair enough, <laughs> because you're right. You know, there's there's a lot of talk. Uh, but it was clear that Huddle was that class above. What's crazy is she finished seventh in the race, so super stacked field, and she got thrown out the back. She, yep, for about sure. About 15k or so into that race, but kudos to her for going for it. And you know, she said afterwards that hey, she wanted to see what she was capable of going with those women, knowing she was in a little bit over her head, and you know, she found out that she was in over her head for sure and but still got the American record and finished strong and got the ten mile and twenty K American record along the way. So props to Molly Huddle. But man, the women's half marathon competitive it is just when we see these times, I'm looking to see I don't even you know, I know some of the names are similar to the f- names we talked about in two thousand seventeen who had you know, run years best, world's bests, things like that. I still don't really know who these women are. And right. it's shocking because I know I know who are the best in the world, even all the way back to the top 15 or 20 in the world in the 5K and the 10K. And I definitely know the top 15 or 20 in the top of the world in that half in the marathon. But in the half, it's just a, it's like you don't really know. And it's it's uh, it's super exciting to me when I think about what could be coming down the pipe in when it comes to the marathon, marathon. long term. Yep. I mean, the, to be the best in the world, our Americans are going to have to get better and better and better because what we're seeing is Molly Huddle is a minute behind the best in the world at the half when she was in half training block. Yeah, and Jordan was two minutes behind right. <laughs> in marathon block. So it is interesting. The other result on the American side, third overall American, was Becky Waite in a yeah. minute minute PR just over 110. She looked great. She said she was doing the race without a watch because her coach was trying to get her to feel more. That's which awesome. we've talked about. Yes. But she said she had a super smooth race afterwards, not really worrying about obviously how she was how her, how she was pacing it, but just trying to have a good strong 
result. Ended up with a minute PR and a really good result for her. Kudos to Becky Wade, Rice yeah, graduate, you know, Houston one local. Of, one of the cool things about one of the cool things about Becky is now you're seeing what it's always a tough transition when an athlete leaves a coach that they've worked with for so many years. And Becky's been work worked with Coach Jim Bevan um, basically for ten plus years. So. That's a long time, and when you make a transition, there's always a challenge. Not only did she go changing coaches, but she moved from basically sea level to 6,000 feet and is training at upwards of 8,000 feet on occasion as she's moved to Boulder. And um, it just takes a while for bodies to, to adapt. But I'll tell you, when she came running by at five miles, she looked as good or better than I've seen her in a long, long time. So... That Roots running group is working for her. It seems to be a really good match, and she's running really well. I think they. I'm really excited about where we'll what more we can see from Becky. I think this was a really big coming out party for her, and hopefully, it's a sign of more great things to come. Yeah, and she's run under 2:30 for the marathon. Hasn't had the results since her debut that she would like, but hopefully, with this new new group and a little altitude training, we'll see her competing for the trials. I mean, I think. Given what you described, how she looked and how she looked in the post-race interview, it seemed to me that she left some time on the table in Houston. I mean, Becky's a tiny person, you know, and she's not, but she looked stronger, more muscular and more, uh, it just looked, sometimes she gets a little lean and, and, and it's like her power gets lost a little bit there. Right. And uh, she looked strong and powerful. And um, as, as I said, I've I've seen her throughout her career. I recruited her to try to, to come to the University of Texas. Unfortunately, she chose Rice, Rice over Texas. But I've been a big Becky Wade fan for a long time, and I've watched her run all these years, and she looked as good or as better than I've seen her ever. So really excited about that for her. So that's a name to watch for. On the men's side, this was one in kind of a surprise. Jake Robertson, the New Zealander, now living in Kenya. And for those that don't know, Jake and her, his twin brother Zane moved to Kenya as high schoolers to basically train in Kenya. To they train said, with the Look, best. We want to train with the best in the world if we're going to be the best in the world. And now they're starting to compete with the best in the world. And Jake proved by beating a just absolutely stacked men's field with including, you know, second place in Berlin marathon, Adola, you know, the, the time wasn't super fast, but they went out a little slow. They did. They were, he it was, was hugely punked, punt bunched pack yeah, when they 60 came by. 601 was his final time, but he finished really strongly and beat some serious resumes on the signature win for him yeah big signature win he was dancing at the finish yeah it was really cool i did it It was was really cool to see him excited so it's an interesting he and his brother those are two new zealand born athletes to watch that will be eventually moving up to the marathon and potentially making waves there First American, you got it right. Sam Chalanga in a PR. Yeah, just something's uh, going on there. They're running well there. A mid, you know, kind of mid hour, you know, post hour, you know, mid mid one hour and thirty something seconds, I believe it was. So nice work for him. A lot of fast times behind that. Nothing super. I guess they're super jumped out at me. Luke Piscadra kind of had a not good had day. Had a not good day, but he admitted in his post-race interview that he basically didn't listen to his coach, <laughs> <laughs> his new coach. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, went out too fast. Yeah. And uh, his coach had, his coach had told him not to go with that lead group, but I guess they were just they were a little bit slower than he thought and he thought that well happens if I just sometimes. if I just catch on to the back maybe something magical will happen and, and it didn't. <laughs> he paid for it at the end. But 
you know, other than that, some decent American results. Noah Drotti was up there in, I think, just under 102. Brooks Hansen's had a couple of athletes in the mix, just over 102. So, you know, a fast day for the Americans. And on the marathon side, I don't know there's much to talk about there. Basically, the Ethiopian athletes just dominated. Yeah, it was... It was nothing to really nope. mention there. But a good day overall in Houston. Now, we have to ask this question before we go into our main topic, which is all four of the Boston American favorites on the women's side race this weekend. We had Jordan and Molly, which we just talked about. Shalane raced a 3K indoor, as we had alluded to on the last episode, one in 8.55 which is not crazy fast, but she looks smooth. She and, totally and won powered by several, away. Several she to- seconds. She so totally powered away from that completely group. Completely dominated yeah. in that performance. And then Desiree Linden was running at the Edinburgh Cross Country Race where Lenny, Leonard Career won on the men's side, the American. But Des finished something like 24th overall and was, I think, 8th American on the day. So and Molly Seidel was 3rd. Third, so third, American, third it's overall. Not, yeah, 3rd overall. So it's not like it was... You know, it's not like it's a race that that the that the that the girls up front ran super fast. Super fast. Yeah. I mean, Yasmin can won, and she's you, you and I both agree, yeah, guaranteed one hundred percent doper. Right. Uh, but other than that, I mean, Molly had a really strong, great day, and it was really a little, a little, a little disconcerting to see how far back Desi was in that race. Honestly. Yeah. So, if you look as you look at all those results, Jordan, Molly. Desiree, Shalane, which one of them gives you the most information, I'm going to say, about what might happen in April? So this will sound really weird and counterintuitive, mm-hmm. but I'm going to say Jordan, mostly because I think, again, she ran around the same time that she ran last year, similar situations, similar conditions. She and her coach now have way more intel on what a marathon does and how her body responds both to the training and the cycles that they have and to um, what she's getting ready to go for at Boston, where she ran a, a year ago. So th- I, w- I look at that and say that coach-athlete relationship and those those way stations, those points that they're going to be able to extrapolate and say, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, all those variables are now going to align much more clearly for them to look at what they can do at Boston. So if I were looking at it as a coach from that coach athlete, I say Jordan tells me the most. Doesn't tell me she's going to beat these other people, but it tells me the most. Um, Molly's doesn't because Molly went for Molly ran a half marathon like it was a half marathon. Jordan ran a half marathon like it was a marathon. Yep. But Molly's performance was better by far. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I'm not saying this is. I'm not judging the performance level. Right. Um, it does make you worry that Molly's. A little too fit for that end of the spectrum, and can she come back and get fit for the marathon? Yes, and 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 while Molly has had great marathons. She's I don't I think at this point in time, I would I would venture to say, I would be more confident in Jordan's strategy than Molly's strategy. At, you know, going apples to apples. But um, now, Shalane's race result, I would really say is the most interesting. Because while it wasn't lights out fast, the 3K to the half mar- to the marathon is so much different than the ha- than the than the half marathon to the marathon. The 3K and the half marathon are probably closer together than the marathon and the half, but it's still on that on that on that you know very on that 
whatever it is, line. Continuum. Continuum. It's definitely... So it, it could be that that result is phenomenal, especially if she's seriously in marathon training mode because sub-nine minutes, it's hard to turn those legs over that fast. While Desi's performance is obviously the weakest of everybody's, I would actually put the performance levels at probably Molly, Jordan, with Jordan and Shalane being almost equals, and then Desi's below it. But Desi's is the least concerning for me because running on in nasty weather conditions on cross-country course is completely different than what those other women did. You know, Shalane's running on a 300-meter flat track, which feels like running on a, on a real, real 400-meter track in a climate-controlled weather-conditioned space. And Molly and Jordan, as we, as we said, had perfect weather conditions. And so tough, tough to sled for a marathoner to sled a relatively short cross-country course distance on non-firm ground. So I'm not so concerned with the time or the place necessarily for Desi. I'm a little bit worried about the competitiveness. So I would really want to know how did she feel about that afterwards. If she says... Right or wrong, whether she says to as 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 putting lipstick on a pig, or if it's really real, that this went about according to plan. I wouldn't I wouldn't bat two eyes about what went on with Desi's race. But if she's concerned and and there is concern there, there's only going to be more concern as things go on. And Desi is playing a game of catch up with all three of these ladies. There's no doubt she is fourth on that list of where we would pick them right now. Um, yeah, I'm sure, but pretty substantially behind that. I think we would, the three of us would look at Shalane and Molly and Jordan and say, "Oh my gosh, I can't wait for this race." But our hearts would really love for Desi to be in the mix and getting after it. But we're pretty sure she's behind. It's there. just hard to believe she's going to have the wheels in the last 10k. I mean, you know, this race typically plays out a certain way. You know, which is, you know, they kind of moseys for a bit you know and then get heats up a little bit in the hills and then you got to go in the last 10k and sometimes even less you know sometimes even less two or three miles and Shalane showed she's got the wheels for the finish in New York and we know Molly has the skill set you know whether she can do it at the end of a marathon is a different question and then we've seen Jordan do it at some level or at least has experience with it having seen it in Chicago and Boston last year so I just don't see how Des can compete with them. And the real question is, what's the conversation been for the last couple of days between Des and her coach? Because that's really the intel is there about are they oh shit or are they we're yeah. okay? Because I mean, she may have all. I mean, she's probably planes. already also into marathon training, so who knows what she's correct. Doing, so she's running wise. a much. This, that's this what I mean. Could have been just. You know, let's take a trip to Scotland. I don't and think I don't think Desi can work on her. 10k anymore i think she's at the age now and at the experience level now what she really needs to be doing is and i'm not saying not to run this race i don't i'm not second guessing any coach athlete decision about race selection and i think it could very well be a perfect thing for her but i sure hope she's in full-on marathon training and that this was to get a good hard effort to do some travel to do some other things and there were some other boxes they were checking off that we're not related that we don't know about where right. it's pretty easy for the other three to say exactly what they were planning and what they were doing yeah. and easier for us to be confident about it. But Desi's not going, she's going to have to be there with 10 K to go. And yeah, currently I'm not confident about there. that. Right. The 
result that's most gives me the most information is Shalane's because I think she's the one where I wasn't sure if she was going to be able to get her head back in the game after New York and after all the media requirements associated with that and sort of contemplating retirement but then not choosing to do that and come back for Boston. You know, that's a lot of stuff to go through mentally. But to see her come out and do this, and it may have been for her a little bit of a, okay, this is going to get me fired up kind of a effort to see her get on the start line, race, show the speed that we know she has, win. You know, it tells me that she's in the game. And I mean, it's if she's in the game in Boston, it's going to be hard to beat her. Yep, I agree. So I'm I excited agree. about that. All right, that's plenty of preview. Already 35 minutes in, we, we digress. But we have fun. Hopefully we have fun did. with it. Hopefully <laughs> you guys enjoy that. But let's talk about our topic for today, which is and we've talked about these two things a little bit here and there in our marathon prep discussions, but not solely and explicitly. And we actually have had people ask us to do this, so we thought we'd do it today, especially given that you know, we've got some folks getting ready for the Austin Marathon here here locally as well as of course other winter and spring marathons coming up or half marathons and so let's talk about the taper first and then we're going to talk about post race and how you get back to training after you've had a race let's talk about the taper first and we'll start with the marathon since you know it's that word is most often associated with the marathon and we're going to start by kind of giving you discussions about how you manage your training loads over those final weeks but before we get there I wanted to make just a couple comments about the taper one is that I've heard I think it was actually McMillan describe he uses instead of the word taper he uses the word peaking Mm -hmm. which is he doesn't want to think about tapering because that has sort of this this imagery that you're you're kind of getting smaller you know, somehow or, or more diminutive versus, you know, getting to the top of the mountain. And so he used the word peaking, which I think is a better term for it. And really that's what you're trying to do is get sharp for race day. And and so so that's sort of point one that with this taper phase you're really trying to find your peak. And point two is in order to find your peak, different people are gonna have different needs. And for some people, that might mean cutting back more than others. And so that's part of what we're going to talk about here is that part of figuring out and mastering this peaking or taper mode is practice and testing things on yourself. And so, you know, we can give you a protocol to try for your first marathon or your second or third. But ultimately, you have to think through how you're responding and reacting given different protocols as you try these races and then adjust for the next time and try to see something different. And we'll give some examples of what that can mean as we talk about it. But it's really important that you know that the taper or the peaking phase is a personal, very personal phase. And you have to learn over time as you do races what works for you. Absolutely. Um, And I would say, Chris, that you know, as we as we sort of stake the outlines here, um, they are individualized and personalized and they're changeable mentally and physically. And what you're really trying to do is over the course of a marathon career um, is to 
refine. You never, rarely will I, I don't think anybody, even somebody who gets a, a taper, what they feel is exactly right. By the time they set back up to run, this is marathon tapering. By the time they set back up to run another marathon, they're not confident that that first tape, the last taper that they did that was just so perfect <coughs> is exactly the right taper. So it it's a moving target on top of the fact that it's both physiological and psychological. And so, again, to reiterate Chris's point that we can give you guidelines, we can give you outlines, but we can't dial it in. And even with my individual athletes, I rarely, I try to dial it in as little as possible. I have some athletes that really want me to tell them exactly what to do every day, and I'll do that if I feel like they mentally need it. But, you know, it's it's a really complex, difficult conversation and one that is more nuanced and with each athlete sort of goes through different permutations even over time. So, yep. um, so while we it, talk to you, we're not, we're not really going to be giving you a definitive prescription for how to do it. We're going to give you some basic guidelines and some ideas and then really try to help you hone in on the things you've done right and wrong and then help you with that. Yeah. And some options. So what let's say, and we'll start with the marathon then we'll go to the half from a mileage standpoint or just maybe training standpoint. What do you recommend for those final, we'll say three weeks, two to three weeks for a marathoner in terms of mileage reduction or changes to training? So first off, what I would do is if I'm working with a marathoner and it's their first time to run a marathon, then I'm usually more aggressive when I would come if it, with it with what I would call a taper from a percentage standpoint. And so what I'm going to give is a, is a basic description of a prescription I would give a first-time marathoner or a second-time marathoner. And this is going to be for somebody who probably runs in that 35 to 40 miles a week range. Um, and so the percentages that I'm going to give in terms of how you would drop it, they're going to be different than somebody who runs 100 miles a week, even though the percentage is the same. It'll, it actually won't extrapolate to exactly the same. So generally, I'm, I'm a lot more aggressive with beginner marathoners, and I'll ask them to get to the point. I'll, stop, I'll start their taper later rather than earlier and really only give them a two-week taper because I don't want them to feel too weird too far out because they don't have the experience to deal with that but then I'll be pretty aggressive with it so let's say that a runner I would have them probably do 75 they run 100 percent of their mileage 100 percent of whatever their weekly mileage is um the third week out the second week out I would want them to run at about 75 percent of what their weekly mileage is and then in that final week I'd ask them to run about 50% of the weekly mileage, but really strive to run the same number of days a week for that last week um, and just make the runs much shorter. Yep. Um, and so that's what I would have prescribed for a beginner. Now, for a more advanced level marathoner, what I usually prescribe for my team rogue athletes and what I've prescribed for my elite athletes, a little more nuanced. Again, I have people doing less than this and some people doing more than this, but generally what I'll usually prescribe is a 50, is 100% Fourth week out, uh, drop a 15%. So they're going down to 85% for the for the next week. Um, and then depending on the athlete, they'll either do another 85 or they'll go to 75. So I'll go 75 to 85% for that second to last week. And then that final week, I'll prescribe usually um, between 60 and 75 miles. So a little bit bigger jump in that last week. But that's really pretty flexible on how an athlete responds. So sixty to seventy-five percent, correct. Yeah. So, but I'm never going to go to the fifty percent that I would give an athlete, and I very rarely prescribe the sixty percent. It's usually more like sixty-five to seventy-five percent. So, um, 
Hopefully so that wasn't too so confusing. So you're keeping the miles, miles for an experienced athlete a little bit higher. For me, you know, for a while I was telling my, my athletes percentages and sometimes that's confusing because then they'd be like, well, percentage of what? And is it total or is it by each day? And, you know, what if I'm doing seven miles? What's 75% of seven? You know, do I round up or down? And I was getting all these questions. So, Which are all reasonable. Which, which are all if, reasonable if you run the math, yeah. if you do it strictly math, it does get confusing. It gets confusing. <laughs> so I, so ultimately what I've changed my protocol to be is not percentage-based, although I think it ends up for most people working out to similar percentages that you described, is my standard taper recommendation for a marathon is three weeks. And basically what you do is, you know, run the same number of days you, you always run. So that never changes even in the final week. Although you might move some of those days around depending on what day your marathon is on. But you're basically running the same number of days you normally would. And starting three weeks out, you're cutting back by one mile per run per week with a minimum of three miles. So if you're normally running eight miles on a Monday for your medium long day, then you'd run seven miles three weeks out, six miles two weeks out, and then five miles the week of. And if you're doing four on a recovery day, you would do three, three, three. Basically with that minimum threshold, still get three miles in because there's really no point in going out for less than that. So that's my marathon protocol is basically starting three weeks out, cut back, cut back by one mile per run per week, which ends up working out to about the same math, but it's a little easier for people to follow. Well, that's true if your athletes are running in that um, in that 50, 60 mile a week range. But when an athlete's running 100 miles a week, those numbers aren't going to those numbers aren't going to jive. Maybe not. Yeah, probably. I not. mean, so, yeah, most of my athletes are 40 to 50, 50. if they're in marathon. Training, and so, so I think that those numbers, that's why I can't go by right. yeah, a, a, a stock. Little different. And, and yours is, and, and for that more advanced athlete, that team rogue athlete that's doing 80 miles a week, it's easier to apply the percentages because you have bigger numbers that you're working with. Sure. So anyway, but that's my standard marathon recommendation, but it is important to recognize that, and some of my athletes that I've worked with for a long time, if they do a two-week taper, then generally I follow the same rule but just do for two weeks. So it's like one mile per run per week, but only for two weeks. And that third week out is 100% of normal. And so it basically works the same way, but just depends on when you start cutting back. Now, what about, and again, still talking marathons, what about quality? How do you think we advise people to kind of flex or, or manage their quality work in those final few weeks? Well, I'm I, probably the most consistent thing in my entire training protocols from top to bottom is my marathon taper last three weeks. Right. It hasn't changed in <laughs> two to three years. And Chris can attest, everything's always changing in my system. I'm always <laughs> doing a little bit of something, a lot of the same. We do a lot of the same workouts, but I'm always adding a little wrinkle, changing where we're doing the workout, changing the paces, doing other things because I'm trying to make sure that we're always hitting, we're always getting some kind of physiological adaptation and you have to change things to get those physiological adaptations. But I really stay really consistent with what I do with the last three weeks with a marathon training prep. So I have a key workout I do um, basically five to six days out on a Tuesday prior to the race. Um, that workout is 
almost oh that's changed a little bit but basically it's it's a couple of repeats of five miles between two and four repeats of five minutes excuse me of five minutes not five miles that was a that was a slip and then it'll start at mgp and those 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 minutes will those that will they'll cut in the number of reps down to their half marathon pace but don't let them go any faster than the half marathon pace um 10 days out, which I was on a Thursday, I've done this perennially and traditionally, and I'll continue to do it, is a 10K hard quality session, 10 days out. Um, and then uh, they're usually going easy on the Tuesday prior to that because we will have done some kind of close on the Saturday three weeks out from their race. And so those things are really pretty standard in my system, and I don't change them because I haven't seen any need to do so. And because my athletes do get squirrely, when they taper. And so there's something that comes with things staying the same that's really important for them to get in the game. And now my athletes have come to expect that 10K workout and to actually relish it and to look at it as not an indicator, but as a key check, here we go, and their body starts to move into that peaking mode and that peaking phase. I find um, initially when I first started doing that, it was just to make sure everybody got some work in and make sure that it was hard enough work so they didn't get too soft before the race. But now it's turned into something completely different, and um, it's really been a great indicator thing, and uh, it's, I've, I've done it consistently. And it's important to note that it takes about 10 days for fitness adaptation from a workout. So anything you're doing 10 days in towards the race isn't helping you necessarily from a fitness standpoint. So that last two or three by five minute workout you have us do on Tuesday is really just to keep us sane. It's, 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 it's mental sanity, sanity massage workout. and physical massage. So it's massaging you mentally to hopefully feel easy. Um, it's not long enough to make it too, too hard, but usually even somebody feeling really poopy going into that workout from whatever reasons based on their taper, they're usually much, they feel much better after they get done with it. And we know we're moving a little bit faster than race pace and they're getting ample recovery, recuperation from that. The recovery for that is whatever they need to get ready for the next one, but it's usually about five minutes. So it's kind of five minutes on, five minutes off, five minutes, five minutes on. Yeah. But my, my last two workouts are always the same as well. They're very consistent. And usually two weeks out, I have my group do two or three times two miles at marathon pace. And then the last week, the workout is always or typically is 10 times 400, starting at half marathon pace, working down to 5K with plenty of rest, usually 60 to 90 seconds. So it's, again, I call that my sanity workout. It's just to get the legs moving. I don't like them doing marathon pace in that last week because if it feels wonky because they're in taper madness mode, I don't want them to get discouraged so we usually do that on track and it's easy and quick and just helps them feel sharp and confident so those are my kind of final two pieces of the puzzle but really you know as bill bowman used to say the hay is in the barn by those final two weeks so it's more important whatever workouts you choose that they're workouts that make you feel sharp and confident yeah and you know chris again we're going to remind everyone that we're talking right now about a marathon taper and marathon tapers are usually very much command performances. So, uh, and and a command performance for a single race, whereas somebody who's maybe running a half marathon or a 5K or a 10K, they've run a couple of 5Ks and 10Ks as close to two weeks prior to their actual 
command performance race, and we really don't have that many races going on in the marathon, or we can't control exactly where all those races go. So we are um, we're really trying to make sure that we 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 hone in on a few key things that we think we need psychologically. But I just thought of something, Chris. We didn't really tell our listeners why you even do the taper, <laughs> did we? No, it's sort I, of an assumption. I just thought of this because I'm currently in a um, a verbal wrestling match with two or three of my athletes that I coach at Team Rogue who are still relatively new to the marathon, um, very talented and are improving greatly and have big, big goals, but they go crazy in the taper mostly because they haven't they didn't they weren't collegiate athletes or they didn't run for many many years and so they don't know that that's sort of a normal state of affairs no matter what as you're prepping for a race. So I think it might be good for our listeners. I told them these are the reasons why they're tapering and it's twofold. The first one and the most important one really is that you need to recover recuperate and recover from the hard loads that have come on and for most people in a marathon program the hardest weeks of training have come between eight weeks and three weeks out from that command performance race. And there are really some pretty long and hard workouts, and the body needs to recuperate and recover from those hard sessions to get the full adaptation and the full benefit. They have to have the super compensatory response that's necessary to have those quality workouts and that hard work to pay its dividends late in the cycle, at the end of the cycle. So it's essential for recuperation and recovery. I say that to my athletes, especially those who are scientifically minded because they can wrap their head around it. The second reason I do it, especially for people who are looking for command performance races, and some of the athletes I'm talking about, they're looking a couple of years down the line, Chris, for what their command performance is going to be. <clears throat> and I need to get <clears throat> them ready for the mind fuck that goes on in the last three weeks prior to a big race. And as they get closer and closer to their very biggest race, it's only going to get harder and harder to control the variables that are going on externally and internally for them. And so what I'm trying to do is run some test runs before big races to see how they best deal with What's going on? So some athletes, they might be a bigger taper. And I've got athletes that I already have been coaching for four or five years who we do a much more aggressive taper. And we're dialed in and we know what's going on. And they're super confident when they go into the last two to three weeks of the race. I don't even have to talk to them about it. You're one of them. I don't even talk to you about the last taper. We don't talk about it. You know what works for you. You're comfortable and confident that you make the hyper adjustments that you need to make. And you roll with it. If you have questions, you ask me. You get them resolved. We carry on. That's how it works for them. But for some of these other athletes newer to me and who are trying to have these big command performances, I got to figure this out. I don't have that many more races before they have this big, big one. And I've, we've got to try to figure out what makes them calm, cool, and collected going in. And so what we're doing is test running this taper or peak process for the big, big, big long-term command performance race. So many of our listeners can also look at this as not, did you get a, this is, it's, it's really not what did you get on the grade. It's a lot more pass-fail, Chris, as we've talked about in some certain ways. Getting, the, getting it as close to right as we can so we can have the most calm, cool, and collected athletes later in rate as they get to that final phase of before the race. So that's really why I taper. Do you have anything else you think that's important for the whys of that? No, I think you covered it. I mean, it's basically a part of that macro stress rest process that we do in training. You're stressing and resting within a week to get 
from long run to quality run to you know quality to long run again to quality so that you know you can actually perform when you need to perform to do the real work you have recovery days etc but then also within a macro cycle you need those recovery blocks to be ready to roll when it matters and in this case it's the real reason that you're doing it so you just need a little bit of time to make sure that you're sharp and ready to roll and the body's rested and and fully ready to give everything on that one day so that's what peaking is about now we've talked about the full it's not often people talk about tapering for a half but what do you recommend there from a mileage standpoint so the final three weeks would look pretty similar in terms of the workouts that we would do you know um they would be but they might be a little bit more event focused and that 10k workout uh might be a little more aggressive so i might write a harder 10k workout for a half marathoner than i would necessarily for so and i can write a 10k workout in a myriad of different ways giving different recoveries and different lengths of intervals and different recovery times to try to optimize the feel that i think they're going to need to have going into it i want them to have a good hard effort because they'll get fully recovered in 10 days and hopefully it'll make that race feel more comfortable and more com- more comfortable from a volume perspective if it's a command performance race, I'll probably follow a very similar taper schedule. Um, but they're there because I'll probably still do a 16, 14 to 16 mile long run with a close in it on that three weeks out. Um, so I would probably keep things really pretty close to normal. I would just change what those quality workouts might look like. And that last Tuesday workout wouldn't have any MGP in it. It would be more along the lines of um, of going at half marathon and accelerating a little bit. And that might be a time where, depending on my athlete, I might switch to the workout that you that you did where you do 10 quarters with ample recovery, cutting down, that all I'm doing is just massaging the energy systems, massaging, massaging the muscles, getting them ready to where they're going to be so they can have that great race. Depending on the athlete, if they don't want to get on the roads, I might do that with them. Yeah, I'm similar. I don't typically advise an explicit taper for a half marathoner. Typically because, you know, their longest run is going to be the week before, you know, you know, obviously we're tapering the long run a little bit. So, you know, usually a week out, I'm telling people to do anywhere from typically eight to 10 miles the week before the Saturday before, but some people might even say six, you know, so I might, well, so obviously we're managing that long run down, but beyond that, the, during the week runs, Typically, I don't mess with them that much just because I want people to feel as normal as possible. And usually, for at least for my group, when we do our workouts on Wednesdays, we'll do that. I do that quarter workout for a half marathoner as well. The week before that, usually I'll do something fast, 5 or 10K, although that will depend on sort of where we are in training with everybody else that's in my group. But but that week of, usually the mileage is pretty dis- pretty much the same. If somebody asks and, say, and says, hey, you know, on my Monday run, can I cut back a little bit? feel like I need it or whatever it may be I'll I'll give them that flexibility you know if they're doing eight miles on Monday for medium long day and I you know and they ask about it, I'll say hey you know cut it to six it's not that big a deal at that point but otherwise I'm not worried about them doing an eight miles on a Monday before a half marathon either if they keep it easy enough so so yeah pretty similar not a lot of taper necessarily required from an overall mileage standpoint Obviously, the long run comes down the week before, as you would expect, but but pretty pretty straightforward for the half. 
Now, let's talk about the other pieces of a taper. You know, you mentioned it that tapers can drive people crazy. We call it taper madness around here. You know, I've done plenty of marathons and half marathons where you would think after the experience that I have as a coach and athlete that, you know, it would be smooth sailing up to these races. And yeah, you get better at coping, but you still go a little bit crazy. You're cutting back a little bit on mileage, a little bit on intensity. Your mind starts to play tricks on itself as you get ready for that goal race, second guessing every little thing you've done and you kind of go nuts. You know, it's like I always tell my athletes in, in emails or at least periodically I remind them in taper mode, you're not getting slow as you think you are. You're not getting fat as you think you are. You know, you're, you're going to be okay. And you have to remind yourself of that. So part of this managing the peaking phase is just managing the mental elements. What do you recommend for st- staying as calm and collected as you can through taper madness? Try to go. Try. This is why we don't take too many more. We ask people to run the same days of the week because we. what you want to do is follow a similar pattern to what you normally do so that you've got, you know where you're going to be hanging your hat. And you're going to know how your body should feel. Because this is the weird thing that happens in the taper, Chris, is that people's bodies just feel strange. Some of that is just the psychosomatic effect of getting ready for a big race. Some of it is the lower of the vo- lowering the volume makes your legs feel heavy and sort of not poppy and fresh. Um, and so the more thing and those things do are that those are the key things that are happening. They're on a larger continuum, but those are the key things that are happening mentally and physically. And so I suggest try to keep things as similar as possible. Um, I also like people to, I do suggest for folks is, is to look at what their work week looks like and really try to limit the amount of stress that they have in their life. I ask them to ask their family to be patient with them and to have some level of understanding for the fact that they're going to be going through a tough time and that their their nerves are going to be on edge, their fuses are going to be shorter, and they're not going to they're not going to be the shiny happy people that they might normally be. Um, and and then what I try to do is I, if I if I'm in the position of coaching them and I get to see them, I really try to pay attention those last two weeks. I'm probably paying attention more in the last two weeks with athletes that I'm newly coaching in a taper than I do any other time. I'm really trying to tell what's going on and how they're dealing with it. Um, some of them will tell me, some of them won't. The ones who tell me, believe me, I know. Those who don't, um, I'm trying to intuit. Are they really struggling here and they're just trying to make it all look good? Um, one of the things I love to say is laugh, laugh, laugh. Laugh at yourself. Laugh at the people around you. If you're going to watch movies, watch the comedies. <laughs> watch the things that make you feel good. And, um, you know, th- those are the things that I try to do. Stay in your... Stay, stay in your Stay as much as you can in the same mode and try to stay as loose as possible. And as a part of that, I always have to emphasize this. Do not do anything new (laughs) during those final weeks. Don't start a diet. Don't start a landscaping project (laughs) in your backyard. Don't go to yoga for the first time in six months. But if you go to yoga... Keep going to yoga. <laughs> if you go to yoga, keep, yeah, <laughs> stick with your routine. 
just don't add to it. It's funny what people start doing when they get a little extra time because they might not be running as many miles or they might have some energy from being anxious that they want to burn off and then just start doing stuff. It's like, don't start that home improvement project <laughs> that you're going to, you've been planning for three months and suddenly you've got time with it. It's like, uh, save that for after the marathon. Like 15 years ago, Chris, I had an athlete who was really ready to run and it was Boston they were getting ready for. We we get amazing weather snap. We get these amazing weather circumstances in, in late March and early April where Austin is among the most beautiful places in the entire planet to live in. And he just decided to completely do put in a new bed <laughs> of garden. Of, of, and he he worked for like six hours. He's like, I had so much energy. This is what I did. And he showed up on the next Tuesday. He's like, my back is killing me. <laughs> I don't understand why my back is killing me so bad. I'm like, what'd you do? And he told me, and I'm like, oh, sweet Lord. Yeah. I, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't do that. And, you know, and then the other thing, I mean, the other things I tell people is really just mainly focus on the things you can control. And those things, as I would prioritize them, are sleep, hydration, and mental prep. You know, sleep is super critical in all of training, but especially in those final weeks. And especially the sort of final few nights before race night itself. You know, race night itself, you might not sleep because you're anxious, you're ready to go, you're thinking about that 4.30 a.m. wake-up call or whatever it may be. But the two nights before, get to bed early, do what you need to do to have good sleep because that's going to make a huge difference. Hydrate well. We've talked about sort of hyperhydration in that final week in our marathon prep episode. I believe that was episode five. So stay hydrated with electrolytes. Do what you can from a mental preparation standpoint. Go back to visualization. Work through your mantras. Figure out what those are going to be for race day. Think through the course. You know, I actually had one of my athletes for Houston tell me this tip that she's started doing for her races is she actually makes a trip ticket That's awesome. for the race. <laughs> turn by turn. Right, left, right. Through the whole race. What a and visualization tool. Yeah, and then and then gives herself little kind of mental cues at each point. And she carries it with her. You know, I was asking her if she ever looks at it and she's like, Yeah, sometimes I do just to pass the time, especially early in the race. Sometimes I don't. But I know it's there. And I know also I'm not getting lost. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so but I thought that was a really cool visualization tool. It's, it sort of helps her visualize the race, visualize where she is in the city, learn the city kind of get into the city, you know, that she's in. And so and any listeners that are new or don't know what we do at Rogue, every single Saturday, our athletes come into Rogue, put their keys in a safe place and then reach for their map that has a triptych, which is a left, right, left description of where they are going for that day. So she's also doing exactly what she does every single Saturday. Yeah, it and it's that's really powerful. Puts her at ease. Yeah. And of course, from a food standpoint, Keep it as normal as possible. You know, there's different science out there about carbo loading, but from the latest information that I've seen on that, if you're going to carbo load, you have to do it to the extreme. And Jeff Knight, who used to coach with us, sort of gave us this kind of carbo loading protocol. If you're going to make it effective, you got to start five days out and you got to do it to the extreme. And for most people, it's not practical. So what I generally tell athletes is just eat normally. 
eat clean, eat healthily, and eat relatively normal portions. If you want to beef up the carbs and add a few more complex carbs in the final days, fine. But mainly just do things that won't mess with your stomach and eat as normally as possible in those final days. And definitely don't eat some crazy big pasta dinner the night before unless that's what you're used to before a long run because that's going to make you take on water, feel bloated, and possibly feel kind of heavy on race morning itself. What else for final final prep, Steve? Uh, I think that's about it. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. I'm sure I could come up with a dozen other things that would be in the moment if you think it through individual athletes. But I, I do know that um, one thing that's happened recently, had happened to an athlete that got ready for Houston, and she slayed her race. She had an amazing race at Houston. She got sick in the week before. Mm, yes. And this happens a lot. It happens pretty frequently that um, we're in a particularly challenging health season in Central Texas. We've got lots of allergies flowing around. Nearly everybody has aller- allergies to cedar, and so sometimes you wonder, is an athlete really sick, or are they, are they just having a sinus reaction? Are they having something else? And so this athlete was definitely sick, and uh, it, it happened because as you taper, you sometimes your body is ready for that super compensation, and sort of you've been holding off some things that are happening. The body just wants to drop it on you. But if you get sick, it's not a, it's not, it's not a reason to give up your goal. It's not a reason to not think you're going to be able to do what you need to do. It's an opportunity to get the bed rest that you need. This athlete actually had the ability to stay home a couple of days, had some sick days that she was able to utilize, stayed at home a couple of days, got back to the normal cycle on the Wednesday or the Thursday when she started to feel better. And, and then we, you know, we didn't make an adjustment for her race plan because we had optimal weather conditions, a perfect scenario. But I went in you know, with a prediction that she would run about two to three minutes slower than what we were hoping for because it's just really tough to manage being sick. Um, and uh, it turns out that she ended up running even better than what we were hoping for. Um, lot, a v- wide variety of reasons for that. Most of all had to do with that athlete's mental toughness and the ability to get the job done. But we didn't allow that kind of, we didn't allow the shaking of leaves to change everything, that, 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 that something bad was happening, to completely rewrite the entire story. We stuck to our guns. We decided to go after the race and run the race to the best of our abilities, given what we knew. But if she had been sick for two weeks and had been sick and had the flu, I would have done something different. I would have written a different plan, and we would have made a different thing. But you do sometimes feel really sick. You can get sick, and you can have some weird things happen. As long as, you're, as long as you're on it and you're taking care of your body and you're able to do the things necessary to get healthy and ready— it shouldn't be necessarily yeah, or, a game changer. Or you've got sick people around you and just trying to stay healthy. I was in that mode of just trying to keep my kids away from me. The little germ, <laughs> the dishes, germ you know, yeah. floating around. Who'd just gone back to school. Somebody asked me how I was doing before the race. Like, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm just freebasing elderberry over <laughs> here. So I was on pretty much every, you know, homeopathic immune booster you could possibly take from elderberry to ginger to turmeric and all of it just to try to stay (laughs) healthy to keep sane and stay healthy but it worked for me fortunately but that that is a good point it's like but if but if you're getting your sleep and you're eating the good you know eating healthy eating clean you know shit happens and you might get sick but hopefully you can hold it off at least till race day now let's talk about post-race recovery and this is something i don't think we've spent really any time on with the podcast but making sure that you bounce back and do it in a smart and healthy way. 
And we'll start with the marathon, you know, again here. What do you, and actually before we go into mileage, what do you recommend just day of or, you know, immediately after the race? What do you recommend kind of in those initial moments just to start kick-starting that recovery right away? Well, immediately is to get fuel in your body, preferably a burger and some beer. That would be my first prescription. Carbs or and protein. Carbs and protein and a little happy sauce to help with recuperation and recovery. Um, but basically, it's eat and drink and eat and drink. And it's, the fr- it's not the thing that people really think about doing immediately. They're thinking and fantasizing about it in the days prior to the race. But as soon as the race is over, they're usually not feel- feeling a little icky and not great. And usually they've had a big sugar, bunch of sugar poured into their stomach and not much fuel in there. And so they don't feel great. Um, if you have a really upset stomach, the first thing I would suggest is even more to drink a beer because it helps with the carbonation, helps sort of up your burp and get some of that <coughs> crap out of your system. But I just say eat and drink and eat and drink. I do have one trick I learned. Actually, Paul Carosa told me this so many years ago, and I don't know that Paul ever ran a marathon, but he's a pretty smart dude. He did. New York. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's once, right. Yeah. Yep. But he's a pretty smart dude, and he told somebody who said that after, I think it was after their Boston, that they were their quads were just blown up from the downhills, and they weren't used to it. He said, <coughs> find a staircase or a slight uh, a, a sort of a, a ramp of some sort that's pretty gradual and walk backwards up it, and then walk down, and then walk backwards up it, either the staircase or uh, the ramp, to eccentrically load those muscles that just got completely and utterly wrecked and Get blood flow by doing that. And gosh, whenever I have somebody tell me they have an immediate, really negative reaction the day after, they're like, I am incapacitated. What can I do? I tell them to do that. And it, it works like magic nearly every time. In fact, I ran the Pikes Peak Marathon a number of times. And um, that downhill, it's 13.1 miles downhill. Um, and it's really, really brutal on your body. <laughs> and I, every, every year, the day... Not the night of, but the next morning, I would be so hard to get out of bed. Your intercostals are killing you. Your abs are killing you. Everything's hurting. And I would walk outside, find the staircase, and do a, up, a, ba- a backwards walking up the stairs. And it immediately, it was like magic. It, was, it really makes a huge difference. That's one thing that you can do. But mostly it's eat and drink and have fun. Eat, drink, you know, and I would say even in those initial moments, keep moving. Oh, for sure. That's one of the things that I've learned in my last five or so marathons is don't you know if you need to sit down for a little bit to kind of gather yourself fine but but try to stay on your feet try to keep moving i recommend giving yourself a little walk to your car you know by parking a little bit away from the start or if you're staying near the start don't be afraid to walk to your hotel even if it's a little bit further away and even if it takes you forever to do it you know just keep moving you know on sunday i ended up probably walking i walked about a i don't know it was four or five blocks to my hotel and then later that evening we walked to dinner as a family and it was probably three quarters of a mile there three quarters of a mile back so i probably got you know almost two miles of walking in post race really easy slow you know nothing crazy but as i tell my athletes all the time movement equals blood flow equals healing so you want to get that blood flow to those areas and start flushing out the waste and it makes a massive difference I think in how you feel the next day and then the weeks prior in the weeks after the race. So try to keep moving. And of course, as you said, refuel with a mix ideally of carbs and protein. 
and fats. So now let's talk about rebuilding miles. What do you recommend for rebuilding miles post-marathon? My athletes think I'm a jerk and an ogre. I have a really simple thing in the first week to 10 days. It's take a few days off. Take any day off you want to take, as many as you want, up to seven days. Even up to seven if you want to. I highly suggest you walk or you do some weightlifting or you do your yoga or your other things. But you don't necessarily have to run. But if you are going to run, no more than 30 minutes on any day. Um, And, Chris, there's two reasons for this. Number one, and most importantly, is to get the muscles recuperated and recovered. And, you know, Houston, which we just ran, is an exceedingly difficult course in terms of getting recuperated from because you didn't have much neuromuscular recruitment, so you use the same muscles almost throughout the entire race, and you're and there's and the whole thing is on a on a concrete bed, and so the roads are built in a different way in Houston than they are in Austin, and so your body is really much more beat up after that race than it is normal marathons. <clears throat> so, I think it's really important. Now, I flex that. You know, you did a little more today. Um, I don't know what you did on Tuesday, but Thursday you, today you did a little bit more than that. Um, and I don't, I don't get all draconian and like aggressive on people. What I want to do is make sure that they both physiologically and psychologically take a break from the sport. And I know that if they're back at their practice on Tuesday or Thursday, that they are back in the game. And if they're back in the game, I'm worried that the game's going to, in terms of getting ready for the next race, that it's going to blow up on me and they're not going to be adequately mentally recuperated and that they're just jumping in either because they're super excited with the race result they had or they're super upset by the race result they had or even anything in between, most people want to get back at it. And so what I really try to do is to keep them away from practices for as long as possible um, just so that they don't have that, that... My group is pretty competitive and they like to roll and they move fast and some days are really easy, some days are not so easy and I'm worried that my athletes will be right back in the game but... Generally, I like seven days to 10 days of easy 30-minute runs. But by that Saturday, which is really six days, by that time, I'm usually, if they follow my prescription, I'm usually pretty loose with them, and I let them run you know, eight to 10 miles, depending on, on where they're at and what they're doing. But the key thing is here, I had to describe this to one of my athletes um, yesterday, is that they, they need to realize that they have to detrain for a little bit in order to retrain appropriately. And they need to take a little bit of time to get off the, the cycle of hard days, hard and easy days, easy. And they need to take some time of easy days, easy in order to be fully recuperated and ready for the next big training block that's coming their way. And if they do that, then they'll stay healthy, which means they'll be able to manage and handle the next big training block. And they'll be psychologically excited and motivated and prepared for that next training block. And that's really, Chris, what I'm trying to do more than anything else is to be ready for the next block of training and not have these bugaboos or weird things that come out of the freaking woodwork when people don't take the time and, and, and the, the time and the mental energy to decompress, relax, recuperate, and get back at it. Then what about after 10 days? What do you say? Uh, then we, we just do a, ba- a gradual, basic comeback. So I uh, would usually be somebody can go half their marathon, their, half of their, glo- their normal weekly volume in the second week. And then usually what I'll say is go from half to 75 to 100%. And you can repeat, but this is key, Chris, repeat any of those weeks for as long as you need to till you feel better. So if you do 50% of your week, so somebody's running 60 miles a week, they run 30 in that second week, 
if they feel like, oh, I'm not quite recovered, then do 30 again. And then next move up to 45 the next week. And if you feel like you're not ready for that, do a 45 again until you feel like you're ready to bump back up. Mostly people get back pretty quickly unless they've had a real traumatic situation in their race. But usually people are ready to handle it that way. That's pretty much how I've done it all always. Um, and it seems to work pretty well. So that's 50% the second week after a, after a really low first week after. Then 75 and then they're ready for 100. But they can repeat as many weeks as they need to. Usually by four to five weeks, nearly every one of my athletes is raring and ready to go and ready to get after it. They will start quality workouts, though, pretty quickly. I mean, in that second week, Chris, but I'm usually checking them, making them run a couple groups back, going slower on their paces, or doing considerably less volume. I'm always making some kind of adjustment for those folks, um, usually in the moment and not in a written form in their weekly workouts. But I'm usually adjusting for them. Yeah, I mean, the, the key thing to remember there are <clears throat> two things. One is, as you said, it's about the mental break as much as it is the physical break. You've worked hard. You need the rest mentally and physically. Secondly, even after the soreness goes away, especially after you've run a marathon, you're still damaged. Your muscles are still damaged even after the pain goes away. And so you got to remember that, you know, once those quads start feeling better again, it's still there's still repair work being done under the hood. And that's especially why you need to build back gradually and reintroduce quality gradually. What I tell my athletes is, you know, no runs until Wednesday at the earliest post-marathon. So if they're running on Sunday, you know, take at least two days off, do some walking and take the dog out and all that stuff in between. First run can be Wednesday. And then I give them a similar protocol after that where they're kind of rebuilding mileage gradually over about a three-week period, reintroducing quality no earlier than in that third week after the marathon, but always in some reduced fashion as you described. So give yourself the time mentally and physically and then rebuild patiently. And of course, most importantly, as we talk about all the time on this show, listen to your body. You have to listen to those cues. And if you're feeling more beat up than others, and there's been races where marathons where it's taken me six or seven or eight weeks maybe not to rebuild full volume but to feel kind of sharp again or to feel like i'm back in the game from a training standpoint or maybe to work through even some of the tightness and the glutes and lower back and have some kind of issues that might have popped up during the race so give yourself the time be patient with yourself as you rebuild it's also important to remember that fitness isn't linear you're gonna naturally come off that peak from your peak race you're going to hit a little bit of a trough after that. And when you come back, you're going to have to rebuild. You're going to have to kind of dig the dirt off of your fitness, as I like to say. <laughs> that's great. And, and that's, that's okay. Great. It's okay. That's a part of the process. And you will you will rebuild back stronger, but only if you allow yourself that time to recover. What about for a half? What do you recommend post half? I mean, you're ready to go much more quickly. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, you know, we have a really fast but kind of brutal half here. Uh, in 3M that's coming up this weekend. And I usually like people to take a week of easy running after that. But most of my athletes are ready to do, ready to jump back into full swing on the Saturday after their race. So that would be six days after. And if they want to come to workouts, I'll let them. But we try to keep the workouts a little bit easier. That's if an athlete kind of went after it in that race. 
if an athlete, if my athletes run the race, but they're doing a couple other things, either they're negative splitting in the race, or they're working on some MGP work in there, or there's a variety of scenarios where they might be ready to, ready to rock and roll and back at it on a on a on a Tuesday. But that would be if it wasn't kind of a command performance race. So yep. I always like my athletes to take that window of a week off after command performance races, no matter what, so that they're ready to go. You know, Chris, I came up with, uh, I used to come up with a, I used to do a two week. Um, when I coached at the University of Texas, I had athletes that uh, race from September 1st until basically June 1st. And so after that, we would take, I would require a three-week recovery phase in which week one, they did no running. And for, let me tell you, for college-age girls, that is like pulling teeth. It was almost impossible to do the first year I did it. But they would then even detrain, they would, I would let them like only do like, 15 or 20 miles in the next week and then they were like 25 to 30 miles in the next week regardless of their mileage and the reason was is I wanted them to detrain a little bit because I needed that big recuperation and recovery and remember they were racing every single nearly every weekend for some of those times some of those weeks and so they needed recuperation and recovery so some of this has to do Chris with how much you're racing what those races look like and uh, how big your command performance really is how big a stretch it is so that's why when we started this at the outset, right? We we said it's a it's not a it's not a guaranteed thing. You just have to kind of play it by ear and know what works for you. But the most important thing is take the mental recovery and whatever your body tells you, listen to it. Yep. A couple other recovery items, you know, I always recommend that athletes try to schedule a massage. Not necessarily right away, but I like to do it either the at near the end of the first week back or early in the second week back to, to just flush out the muscles there's just certain things that can be done with somebody's hands on you that you can't do on your own even so if you're true. doing your own foam, foam rolling and whatever it may be so get a massage to flush the waist if you have the opportunity you know certainly do some of your own foam rolling if you can to kind of flush out especially the quads the glutes the hamstrings all that stuff but getting somebody you know to work on you is helpful and then you know, for me, you know, I go to a regular Cairo visit. I see a physical therapist. And so I always schedule kind of post-marathon tune-ups with those folks as well so that they can make sure everything's still moving appropriately. So if you have a relationship with somebody, a physical therapist, a chiropractor, schedule a post-run appointment just to kind of get tuned up, even if everything feels good, because they might see some things that you're not even feeling that you know will keep you in alignment and get you ready to go for that next cycle. What else are we missing here, Steve? Did you give a window on when they would do that? Similar, you know, about two, you know, late that first week or two weeks yeah. out. You don't want to be I, there on Tuesday. Yeah, I think or you want to give, your, your, give your body some time to settle. I think there's also some things that you know you won't initially feel that you might feel after seven or eight days and so you want to give your body some time to kind of sort through the damage control so to speak and start to get into repair mode before you see either a massage therapist or one of those practitioners all right there you go that's that's taper and post-race recovery if you have other tips do share them with us we will we'll happily share them on the podcast or if you have other questions of course send those along you can reach me at my email chris at rogue running Otherwise, this has been episode 58 of the Running Rogue podcast. Check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. 
Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.